0: Good day, everyone. Well, I guess I should say, hello, mates. That's my best version of the British accent. Hey, I'm Jeff, and this is another episode of Unbeatable. The guy I get a chance to introduce you to today, he and I connected in a very unlikely way. I was sent by the US military to spend a little bit of time with the mid-level officers of the British military in Shrivingham, England years ago. And during the course of that week and a half, two weeks there, somebody just stopped and said, Hey, Jeff, would you be willing to tell everybody your story and describe Black Hawk Down? On the spur of the moment, no notice, I just stood up and did a little bit of talking. And in the room was a guy named Philip Bray that I got a chance to know, I got connected with, and honestly, I developed the greatest respect for this guy. I respect him more than I respect a lot of people who serve in the U.S. military. We connected so deeply that Philip and I decided to start working on a book together, a book called The Fight of Faith, and we decided, both of us, to just give away 100% of the profits. So I want you to meet a guy that had a huge impact on me in a very short period of time. Here it is. I want to introduce you to Philip Bray on this episode of Unbeatable. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. Philip, thank you so much for connecting with me for this episode of Unbeatable.
1: Hey Jeff, it's, it's a real joy to see you again, and um, lovely to be here, so thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, it has been a while. I was just thinking before we started talking, it's been several months since you and I talked. Um, I think the last time that we connected, you were leading a group of university students, and I was zooming in during COVID to your university students. Is that right?
1: That's right. It, it was rather exciting. We We learned during COVID that we could ask speakers from the United States to speak to us in the evening, and it was the middle of their day, and we got some very prominent speakers, yourself included, to come and speak to the unit about leadership and uh, personal resilience, and it was fantastic. So yeah, that was right. That was back in Birmingham, United Kingdom, just a few months ago. Yeah.
0: I was just about to say for everyone who's listening to your lovely accent it's going to be pretty apparent <laughs> that you're coming to us from the uk you were uh tell everybody what you were doing in birmingham um, when we were connecting with your students
1: oh no thank you i so i was a uh, i am a lieutenant colonel in the british army i joined the infantry uh just around 20 years ago and my last assignment which i I've, I've actually just finished was two and a half years running a leadership development course for undergraduates who became reservists for a couple of years and joined with us and alongside their university studies we ran a program of military study and our purpose is to make them more employable in the future whether in the military or elsewhere in society yeah. so broadly similar to your reserve officer training corps structure just right. with a few a few national differences
0: yeah. And uh, I was just going to say you, uh, I can't imagine the privilege those students have for with you leading them for a couple of years. I don't I don't know how much uh, great advice I was able to give to them during that online session that we did from COVID. But I know that you're connected with some pretty amazing leaders.
1: Well, no, generally, they they uh, they, they remember what you said. Um, absolutely. It struck a real chord with them. Um, hugely, both actually with my instructors, but also with the students. And uh, sometimes yeah. it's hard, isn't it? They're a bit deadpan over Zoom. You can't Yeah, that's right. It's, har- it's hard. It's hard to judge language. their
0: attitude across Zoom, yeah. right?
1: But we got some. We also managed to get General David Petraeus, and uh, wow, we had General Charles Krulak as well to speak to yeah. us, um, and a few other adventurers came along. So we had a. <laughs> I personally got a lot out of the last two years by yeah. hearing such fine find people generally like you as well, Jeff, speaking of fantastic.
0: Well, you brought in some pretty impressive names if you had the former (laughs) commandant of the Marine Corps and, of course, General David Petraeus, um, some pretty impressive warriors there. Um, It looks like you're in a classroom right now for people that are watching this episode on YouTube. So tell everybody what you're doing right now at this point in your military career.
1: Uh, So I have, having been working with university students, I've been sent back myself to be a student and uh, I'm doing a one-year in-service master's program, uh, basically on promotion to lieutenant colonel. You get sent away for a year and, and taught how to hire command and staff, they call it. So about a third of our officers go onto this program for a year. So it's just begun and I'm back to school days once again.
0: Yeah, you went from leading the classroom to being a student in the classroom. How about that? Absolutely. And my adject failure
1: was not grabbing enough of my students to write my assignments while I'm here, which I've right, singularly yeah. failed to
0: achieve. So um, I think the first time we met was in Shrivingham. Is that right?
1: It was uh, in, in this exact um, exact location.
0: Absolutely. I was just going to say, you're right back in the same stomping grounds uh, that we first met. Man, this would have been, I don't know, 12, 15 years ago that you and I first crossed paths, right?
1: It would have been, and uh, it was. Um, I mean, it was great, wasn't it? That you were, you weren't officially uh, to be one of the speakers, but they, mm-hmm. I think, some of our peer group knew of your. Uh, story. to heard you before and asked you to, it was an ad hoc arranged session for the whole course. It really was. And yeah. It, it was great. And it, it was generally one of the best talks of the course. And we had some, we had some pretty prominent speakers, but it was the one that people remembered. So, so that was right. That was when we first were in touch.
0: Well, I just want to say I've had the chance in my U.S. Army career to visit uh military forces around the world. And I have never been in a group of warriors that I respect more outside of the United States than that short time that I had in Shrivingham. And and uh, when somebody just asked me kind of at the last moment, hey, Jeff, would you stand up and speak to the whole group at the end of the day? Um, I was, man, what an honor just to be in that, in that room, little alone to be asked to Talk to that group. Um, and I still remember, honestly, one or two questions that were asked and one or two comments that people said. Um, but I just, I, I'm glad to see that you're back and you're now moving on to the next stage of your brilliant career in the military. Hey, can we well, thank you. back up a little bit and talk about how you ended up in the military? Actually, let's talk about wrapping up school and taken a gap year way back in 1995. For some of my listeners, that phrase gap year doesn't make sense because it's not common in the United States. So can you describe what a gap year is? And then secondly, and probably most important, Philip, describe what happened to you on your gap year?
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh, So um, yes, a gap year, then a lot of people did it. So that was you finished school. So you did your last exams, maybe age 17 or 18. And before going to university or college, a lot of people would take a year out where they'd go and do a voluntary program or travel. Uh, Mm And the dream was to go and be a surf uh, bum on a beach somewhere around the world. That's what my people are starting to do. Um, yeah. I, so I took a year out to go, um, and I actually went to Malaysia to a country called uh, Borneo yeah. and was teaching English at a, um, at a school in Borneo and they right on the edge of the jungle in a very poor rural area and teaching people who are trainee pastors actually from the Malaysian church to try and speak a little bit of English. So that was what I was doing there. But, um, I, I think for me, most importantly, I'd been at school and, uh, uh, Um, So when I was just about 13 years old, I was invited to a Christian meeting while I was there Mm -hmm. and I'd ended up staying for the rest of the five years of my time at school and had um, really uh, become a Christian when I was there. But during the gap, it was the first time I suppose I'd not been in an institutional environment where I had an opportunity to choose, make my own real choices and really became a true christian when i was out in malaysia so it was um it was a pretty challenging time out there because it's so very different but it was uh the beginning i might say of my life i would say in many respects
0: well i learned about gap i wasn't even familiar with this phrase until spending time with you um 15 years ago and when i learned what this is i thought this is brilliant i ever since returning from shrivingham i started challenging uh, high school students in the United States, instead of going straight into the university, why don't you take a gap year? And they all look at me like I they have no idea what that means. And I describe the same thing and say, just spend a year traveling and serving. And the serving is really important. The traveling is really important because you see the world, but you're also giving back instead of just expecting the world to give to you. And uh, I have been more and more amazed at the British citizens, the UK citizens that I have met that have gone all over the world and just done incredible things in that one gap year. In fact, I've just taken it to another level. I don't know if you're aware of this, uh, Philip, but I've started telling people, okay, let's say you missed it and you're late in your career and you're about ready to retire. Instead of spending the rest of your life playing golf and just sipping drinks on the front porch, why don't you take a gap year after you retire and spend a year serving overseas and volunteering somewhere? after you retire and people are looking at me like are you crazy jeff i spent my whole life trying to get to this point where i can just go play golf and sip a drink on the porch and i'm i'm trying to challenge them just because of i i was so inspired by what i saw when i was with you um and and the rest of the the folks that take these gap years and make a big impact
1: i am completely in agreement i've i've completely sold on it and just the idea of taking a a a late teenager and saying, go away for nine months um, with maybe yeah. just $20 a month or something and make that work, find a job, have an yeah. adventure, yeah. get home without dying. I mean, but, but more right. importantly, go out there and and actually learn to serve, that everything's not about you, but go and right. contribute in some way. And it, there's no doubt someone older could do it much better than someone at sure. that age. But, but actually, the people who receive you recognize your youth and make it make it really valuable
0: well part of the beauty of this gap year is that many students that go straight from high school into university and they're not ready for the university they spend a year or two and let's just be honest they really struggle some of them don't apply themselves some of them party too hard and they start to fail and then they come back they take a short break they come back to school and now they're really ready to do a great job at the university and I thought to myself, you're actually proving the whole reason why a gap year is important just because of the way that you transitioned the poor transition into the university.
1: Definitely. I, have, I mean, it's, it's a, also, I mean, it's so expensive, isn't it? You go to you go to college, yeah. or university, and, and it, you want to make sure you're ready for it. So <laughs> yeah. having that bit of a break. is a lot of exams through school, aren't there? I mean, going through all your years of exams. Yeah. And, Having a bit of a break before you go there. But I think if you do something really constructive as well, you arrive at university just better prepared to study and do better. So I so I, I, made some huge mistakes in my gap year. But I think that's part of it. You, you learn things yeah, uh, sure. about you. You really grow up so much.
0: Yeah, well, I hope every parent that's listening right now that has a child that's maybe in their teenage years is starting to think, wait a second, maybe I should start talking to my son or daughter about a gap year, because I am <laughs> yeah. a wholehearted fan. I'm a total believer in the gap year. So one of the fun things that
1: happened to me, I'll be very brief, but is because it's a sidetrack, but I there was a couple of un, other English girls who are out on in the same part of the country as us and I. We said, uh, we didn't see them very often, didn't know them very very well, but said farewell to them in sort of deepest jungles of of Malaysia. And then one of the girls arrived in Freshers' Week at the same time as me at university. Really? And uh, quite incredible to have not seen someone since there. And then to go to the same university and
0: be in the same circles there was um,
1: quite uh, quite remarkable. So yeah, lots
0: of fun things like that. I think that's awesome. Uh, tell us about Harriet. Tell us when you met her, and describe your family for us just a little bit.
1: Yeah, so uh, Harriet's um, is my wife, and we married just in 2016. So in fact, Jeff, when we mm-hmm. when we met, I hadn't met her at that point. Um, so I uh, she's a little bit younger than a uh, little bit younger than me, and we've now got three children actually. So uh, uh, we've got congrats, a little baby Daddy. who's just coming up to a year. And then um, the oldest daughter is four and a half now. So, uh, and then the middle child is three. So we've got two boys and uh, the eldest is is a girl.
0: Your house must be so much fun during the holidays and special events, but it also must be exhausting.
1: Uh, I think that sums it up. I can't really add much more to that. Less when I came home today and put on my berries, come back to work. My youngest son was marching around the house doing marching soldiers. And he said that, Daddy, you look like a policeman now. And I'm not quite sure what he meant. I think, but that was fun.
0: (laughs) You said you look like a policeman. I love it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, Just so
0: that people get a chance to know you a little bit better. I've got that standard question that I'm asking people during season two of Unbeatable. Um, total hypothetical question. But Philip, let's say you have a free day, you can go anywhere in the world you want to go, you can take anybody in the world you want with you, you can do whatever you want. There's no work that needs to be done, like total day where you can just pick whatever you want and chill and not have to worry about what's happening at work or at home. Where do you go? And what do you do? Those are important questions. But the more important question is why?
1: Oh, wow, I love that idea. Uh, so I would pick um, a man called um, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And for those of you who don't know the UK very well, of or course, to yeah. would recognize a Welshman by the Lloyd-Jones. Mm-hmm. But he was a great, he was a doctor. Uh, and then he actually became a, a pastor in London and was a really great man. He had great status when he died. The BBC interviewed him. Um, to ask mm-hmm. if you had one bit of advice for the nation, what would it be? Uh, so really prominent figure. But I would go and I would climb, um, and ma- joining the two together, I would climb Mount Kenabalu, which is the mountain in Malaysia. As you uh, you climb it at night, wow. you stay at the yeah. top and you get to the summit at dawn. And uh, right. he would be a great man to spend. It's about 16-hour hike up there. You don't need any climbing equipment, but it's... Uh, and then to see from the top of the highest mountain in South, Southeast Asia, the dawn, and have all that time chatting to that to that man, oh yeah, uh, would be uh, would be amazing, would be awesome. It, it's hugely hard work so it's about four and a half thousand meters. You get a bit of altitude yeah. sickness, so it's a bit of a test physically. Yeah. But um, to all hear right. his um, his uh, views firsthand would be astonishing.
0: Well, believe it or not d martin lloyd Jones's messages his ministry has had a big impact on me i have listened to and read his uh you know his messages and his sermons for 30 years i don't know that you're, you may not even be aware of that but man he no uh, i wasn't in no. fact i have a number of his commentaries uh, a number of his books um still on my shelves that's how much that welchman has impacted me as well
1: he, and he had a great heart. He was just, uh, uh when I was, um, just in my early twenties, there was one issue that I was grappling with and I was being tossed between two opinions, but someone gave me a book by him on that topic. And from that day it, it answered it and I have not really? needed to revisit that issue. Uh, so I, usually right. uh, so grateful for the Lord for him.
0: Yeah. Hey, let's talk about what prompted you to join the British military. Tell everybody a little bit about your career, if you can, just kind of summarize uh, when you started, how you started, and and lead up to what you're doing right now at the academy. Yeah, so I
1: I didn't intend to join the military before I went to college, but I but I knew it was the right thing that I should do. So I had no prior experience or really family connection to it. But I joined in 2000 and joined an infantry unit. And at the time, the British Army was mainly occupied with a little bit in Bosnia in the Balkans, and then yeah. Northern Ireland tended to be right. So I spent yeah. my platoon command in Northern Ireland. And uh, then and then the Twin Towers happens just when I was uh-huh. finishing my training. Uh, and, you know, that sense where you see something happening, you realize, I don't know how, but that's going to affect yeah. me. So the next 20 years or 10 to 20 years were then spent in the Middle East in various countries in uh, supporting the various um, fights there. So I, so that's been, broadly speaking, what I've been up to um, with a little bit of time in Africa as a company commander as well. Yeah.
0: Did uh, to, for the listeners that don't understand the British military, did you get a chance to choose the infantry, or was it selected for you?
1: It's a bit of both. So uh-huh. you can it's almost like a matchmaking system. So you find something that you right. think that you would like to do, and if they like you, they'll offer you a place. So uh, people tend to choose a specialism, but their trainers tend to tell them you're suited to it or not. And if they say to yeah. you, don't apply. Then you 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 won't. So uh, I just went for the infantry, as so I'm interested in people as opposed to equipment, and that was the area that I thought I wanted to go into.
0: You just answer my next question: Why the infantry instead of another line of work in the British military?
1: Yeah, and it it was principally that matter. Uh, most of the the largest proportion of the British army is infantry, so. When mm-hmm. we go away on operations, it tends to be the infantry who are the ones who are delivering the task. There might be many others enabling and making it happen, but it tends to be the infantry who are the ones actually doing the operations. So it, it's always been to me the most exciting one. But but it, fundamentally, yeah. I've enjoyed the idea of the idea of leading people and that skill of of morale and motivating people it comes with the leadership in that way as opposed to just the mechanical elements that, that, yeah. that I didn't have much interest in.
0: So you, you joined the infantry late nineties. Is that correct?
1: No, it's actually, you know, it's uh, two thousand that I joined.
0: Okay. Um, would you describe, you just mentioned Northern Ireland. I'm very familiar with, uh, you know, the IRA, Sinn Féin, Northern Ireland and the challenges that the British, uh, government went through during the 70s 80s 90s Um, but can you describe for the listener who has no concept of the challenges and what the situation was like in Northern Ireland for many years what was a deployment to Northern Ireland like for you you know kind of describe it for the listener will you
1: yeah I mean it was it was incredible really that we had in the UK soil when we think of Being a democracy, so many soldiers deployed there. But at one time, Mm -hmm. Belfast had several brigades of infantry just in the small city of Belfast. Because of the, uh, you in effect had two sides. You had the IRA, who wanted Northern Ireland to be united with the Republic of Ireland. Uh And if it had just been them, they were a minority group, but they were very well armed and very violent. And then you also then had the loyalist paramilitaries who were mm-hmm. equally illegal using uh, various violent and terrorist actions to attack the other side and then also targets on the security forces. So classic terrorism try trying to undermine yeah. democracy to achieve what they want to, um, whatever their political objective was. At the same time, caught up with drug money, violence, gangs, uh, all of that yeah. taking place at the same time. <laughs>
0: Well, so I I just wanted people to hear the UK, the British military was in the uh, counterterrorism was in the, the war on terrorism, not not Islamic fundamentalist terrorism, but you guys are fighting terrorism way back in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And really, for a period of time, the the world front, the forefront of the fight of terrorism was in Northern Ireland for a few decades.
1: I, I, and the real people at the front were the Police Service of Northern Ireland, who yeah, were yeah. They were then the Royal Ulster Constabulary, who were an exquisite bunch of mm-hmm. police, um, very capable local policemen. But the the army went in, and we tended to be there for between a year and six months, depending on our role. Sometimes, in fact, sometimes two years, and would patrol yeah. alongside in support of them. Uh, it was um, as a young patin commander, there were bits that were a lot of fun. The uh, public orders, we'd call it, so the riot policing, where there would be riots in Belfast. And you'd go along with your shields and batons to support the police. And it was very much like being a Roman soldier. Uh, You couldn't use your weapons, so you were just using physical force And uh, um, amongst those settings. And then other times patrolling through rural areas to try and intercept um, bombings or whatever else it might have been. Um, So uh, I was at the latter end of it when things had calmed down and there were only some very hardcore elements left. But the mainstream had declared a ceasefire at that time. Um, So uh, thankfully, it was less violent than it had been some some years before. But a fascinating place to start my time. And I was there as a particular one. Absolutely. So that was great fun.
0: Philip, you've spent more than two decades in the British military. Um, This may be a difficult question for you, but tell us about one of the really good days. Tell us about one of your best days in the military and what made that day so great.
1: Yes. Well, there there have been so many. I think uh, the highlights for me have been being away on operations, so whether that be in Afghanistan or Iraq. But uh, I, I would say some of the best days are where you can see that made a, a real difference to the local lives where you've conducted an operation that has been successful. And uh, we had a number of those, I would say, in Iraq where we inter- interjected, uh, we, we launched a search operation on one place mm-hmm. and we found a lot of lists of, of, in effect, huge amount of intelligence, but names of people who have being targeted who are part of a sort of sheer death squad's target list. That yeah. we were able to inter, interject through just pure, in old money, you might have said, police work of good intelligence, right. and yeah. then actually having the, the initiative and courage just to go ahead and, and go and conduct an operation to deal with that. Uh, but I suppose where you can see that it makes a real effect on the local people, which um, that was—I th- I would say—that was one of my highlights. Uh, I think learning to parachute was another highlight. Uh, All right, uh, which was yep. just. Um, Great, great fun. Um, Definitely a real highlight. Uh, So so many. And and I've loved the friendships um, that it's all based on the humor, the friendships that have been a real thrill um, over the years.
0: Yeah. I just want to point out to the listeners, when I asked Philip about his best days, it was fascinating that instead of talking about a day where he gained a lot personally, He just described for you a day where he gave himself to a foreigner and made life better for somebody else. And I think this is classic uh, what a warrior does, right? They give of themselves, himself or herself to other people so that they can have a better future. And uh, uh, some of us have the privilege of knowing I really made a difference in another person's life by what we did today in the military. That That was beautiful, Philip.
1: Well, I've, I've believed it. I've always believed it to be true that the, you know, our armies, our defense forces are absolutely, if you didn't have the US and Britain, then who, who would be interested in intervening for the sake of nations in the way that we do? Um, so no, so yeah. it's, a, it's a real privilege, but it's, it's completely there in service, isn't it? That we're there to serve as opposed to what we get out from it.
0: Yeah, and I I hope I want to just point out right now, um, you've heard now Philip more than once talk about the towers in New York City falling and how that impacted him in the British military. You heard him talk about Iraq and Afghanistan. In fact, Philip, I want to ask you to tell me about one of those really rough moments in Afghanistan um, in just a second. But I I feel the need to point out, and I I remember speaking to that entire group in Shrivingham. And I said, listen, the U.S. has allies all over the world. We have people that will come alongside of us. And thank God for the allies that are coming alongside of us. But then we have a relationship that is very special. And it's the British military and the U.S. military. And it doesn't feel like allies. It really feels like brothers and sisters working together. And just as a An American citizen, I want to tell you, Philip, thank you for the way that you have personally stood next to the U.S. on battlefields in Iraq and Afghanistan and fought alongside the U.S. military to help make the world, not my country, not your country alone, but the whole world free from terrorism.
1: It's been been an honor and it's thrilling, isn't it? The and I've generally experienced that closeness between the UK and the US yeah. forces. That these many missions that we've done, it's been it's been great.
0: Yeah, there's a bond there that is special between those two countries. These two countries' military. Um, I I, I think I, I want you to explain to the audience. You're in the UK when the attacks on September 11, 2001, happen, and you now are going to become part of this global response to international terrorism so when did you start going overseas iraq and afghanistan tell us a little bit about those but at some point i'd like for you to just describe one of the hardest the days that you spent in afghanistan so can you just tell us a little bit about those deployments that you went through in afghanistan and iraq
1: Yes, yeah, so I I was in um, Iraq uh, first, and uh, spent um uh, that was uh spent seven uh, I was only seven months there in the end, but that was down in the south in the second city of Basra, yeah, uh, just mm-hmm. outside. Oh, sorry, just outside Basra city, and that area down to Kuwait border, down to the Saudi Arabia border, uh, in in two thousand and three, uh, so we ended up going out around then to that that um. And then Afghanistan was just was a little bit later, um, and uh, I went out there as a senior captain, whereas I was out in All right. in Iraq as a more junior captain. And uh, the, uh, when I was company commanding, I was about to go out to Afghanistan again to command a company there, but uh, that was just when we started to reduce the number of British soldiers there. So yeah. I ended up getting rerouted to another place instead. But uh, so very much the first. um and I, as a commander, as I was then, you, you bounce in and out from your battalion. And it just depends um, where they're going as to where you go. But in effect, we were going every couple of years out to either Iraq or Afghanistan. And that doesn't sound very much, but um, it, if you go away for six to nine months uh, and then you have a two-year gap, you get back. And the, the year you get back is almost the recovery you have yeah. a bit of time yeah. off. And before you know it, you're actually retraining again yep, to go back right. out there. And two years is really—it sounds like a lot, but it's just—it's it, just really nothing, and it means you're doing nothing yeah. other than focusing on those. Uh, and it was quite striking when I came to take over my company that there were some of the junior soldiers who had been, unlike officers, where we move around in and out. There were about a girl on their third, um, their third wow. tour, um, yeah. and back basically back to back. And um, what was quite striking to me was with some really quality junior soldiers, yeah, that had done excellently. But for the first time, they're realizing, hey, I, I got away with it the first time. The second time,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I kind of almost died, and I had friends who died. I'm now getting at a third time, and uh, it re- it makes me realize that I'm probably not going to get away with it three times. And for the first time, I had these seasoned soldiers, I had some of them. I could tell asking not to go back because they didn't yeah. think that they would live uh, if they went back again, and that's quite a quite striking. So this is the sort of effects that it had on on the, the units and the the, the individuals.
0: Yeah, um, for people who have not been in this constant deployment cycle. It may feel to you or it may seem to you like, oh, it just gets easier the more that you do it because you become more adjusted and more comfortable with it. But the truth is what you're describing, Philip, is exactly what I felt. And I almost every warrior that I know, the more often you go, the le- the more difficult it is. And at some point, people start to ask, like, hey, I've made it through the last couple or I've made it through all of them up to this point. But is the next one? Is that when my number comes up? Is this going to be my last time around? And every time gets more dangerous, usually gets more scary and a little bit more challenging um, personally, if not tactically challenging. Um, You went through some hard points or some hard times in Afghanistan. Can you describe one or two of those for us?
1: Yeah, I, <clears throat> one was um, was actually just touching. What we just said there before we went where we had one soldier who was got known as the nose because he could. Yeah. he was the was the lead person on a patrol, and he um, right. received a, a bravery accommodation for his work. Yeah, he found so many of the improvised explosive devices, uh-huh. and he always took the lead. And one of the hard things um, was was realizing that. We couldn't take him for a third time because oh, if he went man. he would he would be that individual who would insist yeah. on leading every right. single patrol so so it was a hard but necessary thing to say you're not going and um, we didn't ask him we assigned him to go to, right. to do a recruiting and training job and got him out of there because he, he just he would either make a mistake or if he died then there's it would just be not not worth it so that's some um, yeah. some of the difficult things you've got to decide on isn't it but uh while i was um out in afghanistan we were we our job was to have small teams embedded with the afghan army in helmet province and mm-hmm. uh, um, we were launching quite a lot lar- launching quite a large operation and uh it was led by the afghan army and we were embedded with them to integrate them with the british and then the multinational division. By the way,
0: uh, but, sorry to interrupt, no, what time frame was this that you're describing?
1: So this would have been back in 2010, so it's a little while ago now. Okay,
0: yeah, because back in 2010, that southern province in Afghanistan, the Helmand province, this was where the big fight was, and and most of the heavy combat was down in the southern part of Afghanistan, in the Helmand province, where you and the rest of your, your, your forces are, so I'm just getting a mental picture of what this would have been like. Um, Keep going.
1: And if I um, and the area was called the Green Zone because it was Um, a very very arid area, but there was the Helmand River Valley, and uh, basically mm -hmm. a strip either side of it was cultivated, and so there were big tree lines, and and that was really where all of the uh, the fighting took place because the insurgents could hide in the bushes. So uh, we had bases in the desert. And then just a mile away, you could be then in the thick of uh, scrap with with the locals. But um, the Afghans were doing a large clearance operation, probably about a brigade size um, force going in to do that. But they, for whatever reason, they got delayed and they got in the the disastrous position where they had all their vehicles lined up, ready to go, and they got a delay, uh, which lasted about 24 hours. And wow. you don't need to be an intelligence officer to realize I yeah. think they're gonna come here. I basically yeah. gave them 24 hours to prepare all right. of their defenses and lay lots of bombs. Um but uh um and this was you know uh for me as a Christian, I wasn't so worried about myself. Um, but it was actually the all the people who I was with. Um and in fact we started to get intelligence reports and the exact phrases translated from Arabic um, or, or uh, Pashtun, sorry, into English, were that they have laid a sea of IDs. That so there are so many. That, <laughs> a sea uh, it, of a IEDs, classic. which yeah.
0: ought to sh- strike terror in anybody who knows what that language sounds like. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So they were, the surprise, all surprise had gone and they had laid their defenses um, for us. But, uh, Um, And it it was that point where I realized that this wasn't going to be... The operation had to go ahead, but it wasn't going to be without um, loss of life and injury. Um, uh, And and so, um, you know, this is both my sort of one of the worst days, but also one of the best in that um, with me, there were a number of um, multinational Christians. In fact, there were some American believers in the camp where we were just outside the green zone. And most bizarrely, that I had more church meetings in that camp than I did in the UK. All right. Because I guess in the evenings we didn't have much else to do. But um, a number of us uh, in that 24-hour delay were um, able to really cry out to God and pray for, those yeah. who, for what was about to happen. And it, it was... Um, and we knew that our we knew that what we'd asked had been answered for. And when the operation went in, I, I can't explain it. Not a single bomb went off, and the whole time, really, um, they what? cleared every single one. And uh, they w- sort of were in fierce fighting for the whole time. There was not yeah. a single British casualty uh, during that time, and uh, I I simply can't explain it um, how that happens um, because that was really just quite the opposite of how it should have been but i it was it was um it was a bad day but it was utterly turned around by um by what actually ended up happening
0: well i was in the Helmand province late 2009 in afghanistan and i was actually at the the british base that you're describing and uh i saw all the intelligence reports about how hard that fighting was down there And as you're describing this story, I'm thinking to myself, no warrior on the planet wants to lose the element of surprise. So when you stack all of the vehicles up and get them ready to go and then you stop for 24 hours, everybody who gets ready to leave on those vehicles 24 hours later, in the back of their mind, they're thinking, I'm going to blow up. I'm going to get killed today. That has to be going through everybody's mind because you've just given away the element of surprise before you go out there. So, Philip, I'm just wondering, like, when you're getting ready to roll out of the the base and getting ready to roll through that valley with those Afghan military, what's going through your mind? And really what I'm trying to figure out is, how did you do it without, you know, letting fear take over and letting fear control you during that fight?
1: I can't. Um, I So I wouldn't say it's anything. Uh, it's nothing natural. It, it only came about by... The So I suppose when people who don't pray think about praying, they think it is a a mental crutch, that it's just something that gives you, makes you feel better. Like I might use stress balls, you pray. But there was something different about when we knew that God had answered it, is with it came a complete reassurance to uh, our soul that it was just a complete knowledge that, it had been resolved, and an utter confidence. Therefore, that that was the case, and that is nothing internal. And I would be presumptuous to say it if I was just making it up. But that was generally the why it was. Therefore, that there was no sense of um, fear about what would happen. Um, you know, regardless of whether there is injury or not, but knowing that actually God has answered He's got it, um, and He will resolve it. So that it was something beyond beyond us.
0: So to be clear, you're getting ready to go out. You have this 24-hour delay, which gives you and a few others that share your faith the opportunity to go and to really pray. And like you, I know plenty of people who call prayer a crutch, I'm using air quotes here for those of you who are listening and they think it's just your way of handling stress. But like you, Philip, I'm a guy who believes in the person that I'm praying to, believes that he really hears me, and more importantly, believes that he has the power to do something about it. But it sounds like you just said, and I think I understand where you're coming from, but I want to make sure the whole audience hears you clearly. Sounds like you said before you actually rolled out of that base, you felt like you got an answer from God, and from that point forward, you didn't really have to worry about the battle. Is that right?
1: That's right. Yes, and that it's unexplainable, uh, but that was entirely it. That was a, a, a um, and it's. I would say it's not always like that, but it was yeah. so distinct, uh, and combined with the knowledge of the intelligence reports that I can explain it by no other, no other way. And a friend of mine who was in a different um, area of that same operation, it was, um, he, he sent me back a picture. He had the time of his life because he, he was basically in a gun battle for a few days and he, he just loved it without anyone actually getting hurt on our side. I think it, the other, it wasn't yeah. the case the other way around he sent me a picture of him in a sling, in the sorry, in a sling, forgive me, in a hammock, in a pause of yeah, battle, sure. uh, hung from his vehicle to a tree, you know, as peaceful as could be. And I, th- all um, right. and, I, I and I thought in my heart, I know what really happened where you were yeah. in the way that you don't. The reason why it was like that for you, why you were able to relax in a hammock was because there's a God who is interested in every human being, and yeah. cares for all and will hear prayer. So, so that was very thrilling.
0: I love the language you just used. He's in a multi-day gun battle and he's having the time of his life because he's got this (laughs) sense of peace. And I know people are sitting there saying, I don't understand this. So Philip, thank you for just saying it's almost impossible to explain because they're thinking to themselves, Philip, you've got to help me understand how you can hear an answer from God because I've prayed before and I've never, air quotes, heard an answer from God. And like you, I don't know that I have words to describe what that was like, but I've I've had moments exactly like that as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's not that you're necessarily hearing, is it a sort of a voice from heaven? Yeah, it's not an audible voice from heaven, right? But in your soul, you know that something, I suppose one way to put it is you've had a burden and uh, you've come to God with a burden that is weighing on your, you're worried and weighing on your heart and then as you're praying suddenly it's gone and you have no more sense but a levity is if that burden you you know logically you can explain it but that burden is gone and and it's a that sense of knowledge in your heart that god has taken it and will answer it in whatever way
0: I want people to hear this language that Philip is using right now, because just a moment ago, Philip, I wrote down your statement. You said this was perhaps one of the worst days, but also one of the best days of your life. And I'm certain people are driving around listening to this episode right now, and they're struggling with some of the biggest challenges of their life. And there's a big burden on their heart. And they don't know how it's going to turn out. And I just want to say not just knowing that the one that you pray to has the power to make this thing turn out well, but knowing that he hears you, knowing that he cares, knowing that he is going to act and act in a perfect way and always do good in every circumstance, that alone makes the burden bearable. That alone makes you unbeatable, really, is knowing I've got somebody in my corner that's bigger than any circumstance life can throw at me and that what that's what can take one of the worst days of your life and turn it around and make it one of the best days of your life
1: and maybe without the bad days my perspective is you don't have these these accounts and these times where you've seen god intervene and that if the, yeah. and that's why maybe it's contradictory me saying it's been both my worst and then my best day because without these times of problem and trial, there wouldn't be maybe the same opportunity for to see God move. And so I, I'm grateful therefore for these hard places and things that God has taken me to because without them I would be poorer.
0: Yeah. I answer people the exact same way. In fact, I use almost your exact same language, Philip. I'm not sure if we've ever talked about this, and I tell people that big gun battle in Somalia that became known as Black Hawk Down, by far one of the worst days of my life, but it's also at the same time one of the best days of my life because I saw God do things around me that I cannot deny and it's stuck with me for the rest of my life. So I wouldn't want to go through it again. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. One of the worst days of my life, also like you, was one of the best days of my life.
1: Uh, absolutely. And I've I've also learned it's not only also the spectacular difficulty that is so thrilling to me. It's, it's definitely more interesting for other people. But for yeah. me, any time where I've had something that has been just bigger than me, where a problem that I've had that I know that I, I've messed up even, for example, in work and I'm just doing something badly if I've got a staff office job and I just yeah. don't know what the answer is. Um, it, it, it is the same God in that circumstance who can make a solution and provide a way for me. And I've found those. They're not as exciting, but they're just as much right. uh, valuable to me, I find.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Philip, now you're talking to every single listener right now and you're talking to them right where they're at because all of us face things that are bigger than us and we face those things all the time. Some of them are really catastrophic, life-changing events. Some of them turn out to be very minor, but all of us face things that are out of our control and bigger than us and cause us a little bit of worry and you're giving everybody the advice on how to be unbeatable in the very biggest things of life and also in the everyday things are out of my hands i don't know how it's going to turn out moments of life as well yeah yeah and
1: i i and i think the bible describes this as being the secret of contentment isn't it that yeah yeah. What what makes contentment is it is it that I've got enough money to afford a big new car or a house and actually what right. well, I I think that's where the world gets it I think that's where society gets it so wrong but actually it's right. generally speaking to be content where we are and not fearful yeah. about the circumstances we're in not because we're resourceful and can fix it but because we know the one who has yeah. all resources and can fix it on our behalf and therefore we can be content. With little or much, because we learn how yeah. to live our lives trusting a God, and that's that's for me. It's the the secret of contentment.
0: Absolutely, Philip. You've chased bad guys all over the world, from Northern Ireland to Afghanistan and Iraq, but also to Africa. Can you describe? I realize that there might be some uh, sensitive details here that you need to leave out, but describe a little bit about your combat deployment to Mali.
1: Um, Sure. I I was there in a training mission role. So the Mali, uh, to give everyone a very brief, um, very, very brief um, history, when uh, Gaddafi was toppled in Libya, Mm -hmm. a group of armed mercenaries called the Tuareg, who were from Mali, picked up a huge amount of weaponry, took their weapon fighting skills and returned to Mali, defeated the Malian army, who then conducted a coup and overthrew the government. Yeah. And then the United Nations and France intervened with a war fighting mission to defeat the insurgents before they seized the whole country. And then in the following years, forces then went out to retrain the Malian army to better go back up north and fight the Tuareg and restore stability to the country. So my job was was to take a company training team. It was great. We deployed on a C-130 Hercules from the UK. All right. Six months of supply. So it wasn't a long mission. But to go out and to train a battle group, so that would be, uh, say, six, seven hundred of the Malians, yeah. and they spent three weeks with us. Um, they got equipment, all the training they needed, and then they went off um, to then fight um, the uh, the Tuareg and sort of restore stability uh-huh. to the country. So an incredible country to to be in. So not us directly fighting ourselves, but training others and giving them the skills to better go off and hopefully take that country back. Um, so it was an it was an amazing time.
0: Yeah. For the listener who is familiar with the battles against terrorism, but you're not really um, that familiar of what was happening in the Horn of Africa, what was going on in the Philippines, this fight against terrorism was all over the world. And I saw the intelligence reports of the battles, well, not the battles, but the insurgency that was rising up in Timbuktu and how that was at some points at the forefront of the war on terrorism right there in um, Africa, and you're in the middle of it, from Mali to Iraq to Afghanistan to Northern Ireland. You've been to all of the fun spots in the world.
1: <laughs> um, I, my regret was I didn't manage to get to Timbuktu. In in various uh, board games when I was a child, Timbuktu was yes. one of the destinations, but it was uh, sure. regrettably off-limits when I was there. Uh, yeah. But that's the, and, that, and this is the incredible effects, the ripple on effects of what happens at 9-11, wasn't it? That suddenly yeah. this concept of terrorism has led to decades of um, of operations around around the world. Um, but what I find moving is you see the, the impact of it in all the countries I've seen. is just yeah. being on the ordinary people where they right. are forced to live under criminality or real adversity and affliction you don't find that these terrorist organizations are particularly just governors to run a country quite right. the opposite they exploit it to their interest and that's been really grievous to see some of the human suffering taking place in these countries where we can go in we can live in our relatively clinical western bases go and perform our operations and then ultimately all being well we can go home whereas they're left with uh, The real instability and uh, lack of governance in their country, Uh, and that is such a deep problem. It's very hard for the military ever to fix that. I think.
0: Yeah, like you, Philip. I mean, obviously, the U.S. was was touched by the attacks on September 11th. The British, uh, the British. Commonwealths so were touched by the attacks in London on 611 but me and what you and I have had a chance to see is just how evil and I don't have a better word for it um terrorism is because terrorism is not armed warriors fighting against another country's armed warriors terrorists choose to attack the innocent and force their will by making innocent people's lives miserable or te- or or Um, torturing, killing the innocent. I mean, literally the word terrorist means terrorizing people that have no ability to withstand or no ability to fight back. And like you, some of the, well, I was just going to say some of those most uh, terrible moments of my life is seeing what terrorism does to innocent people. It's really grievous,
1: and um, that I've heard sometimes people saying that you know one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorists. I, I often think well I don't think they have been to where there is terrorism because yeah, they, that's right. they never call those people freedom fighters. Absolutely, you know, that is far from what is going on. There is something else going on there that is nothing yes. to do with freedom. They are taking people's freedom away. And uh, left unchecked, these folks will, would carry on. So right. you've got to have um, the ability to intervene, is my opinion, to bring stability where terrorism otherwise would be so wicked. But it, it, it's grievous um, to, to see it. In. Uh, but the Malians were really, really uh, lovely people. And uh, they were brave, brave warriors. But um, it's hard to... To, it's interesting to find an army that's actually been defeated in battle and the idea of trying to rekindle them to better go, go ahead and go back into the fight and win it's a really tricky task that that we had
0: yeah yeah so um you listen you have been uh locking arms with the u.s military and you've been fighting alongside of us for 20 years and I, I want to say it to you one more time, Philip, before we wrap this interview up. Man, thank you. You're much more than an ally. Thank you for being a brother in arms. Thank you for taking your stand and for the innocent and for fighting against terrorism and trying to push this evil back into, you know, trying to contain this evil um, all over the world. I said it to the entire group in Shrivingham. I've said it to you before, and I want to say it again. Thank you for your role in fighting and protecting um, freedom for people all over the world, buddy.
1: Uh, Jeff, and it's um, utterly two-way in that it's it's been our privilege to be alongside the uh, our american partners all this time gen- genuinely um it is a it is a it truly is a special relationship and it's been yeah. it's been thrilling and fantastic uh, and we've been we don't kid ourselves either we're a small part of that of that force um relatively so it's been but it's been tremendous joy but i uh, i uh, my greatest joy has been meeting christians and as well who have been serving so that has been to me a real joy Jeff so thank you
0: yeah well Philip you and I met um just kind of connected with each other out of nowhere and developed a really strong relationship years ago a relationship that continues to this day so I just want to say thank you for taking some time out of your schedule it's evening in the UK thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to be with us tonight and to record this episode with me it's my great pleasure I trust it's been a nice Philip shares the exact same experience that I shared there was a moment where one of the worst days of my life also became one of the best days of my life this guy really is unbeatable and today he was talking to all of us when he said if you're facing something that is bigger than you something that is out of your control the first and the most important thing you will ever do is take it to God in prayer. And I just wanna say, Philip, thank you for being so transparent, parent. Thank you for being so humble. Thank you for being so gracious on this episode of Unbeatable. Now, I told you at the beginning that he and I worked on a book together. It was printed in exclusively in the UK. But if you want the book, The Fight of Faith, you can find it on Amazon or you can order a hard copy and I'll put the links to this book in the notes to this episode. So if you're driving, you don't have to stop, pull over and write this down. I do wanna say one more time, I've not taken one penny for this book, nor has Philip. We give away 100% of the money for it, but this book is just full of guys and gals that are unbeatable and I've gone through incredible things in the military, British military, US military. You get a chance, check out the fight of faith. I also wanna tell you thank you for tuning in to this episode. If you found us for the first time and you like what you hear, why don't you go ahead and subscribe? Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, or you can actually follow us on social media as well. Just go ahead and search for at Unbeatable Podcast. I also want you to know that if you're going through some of the things that Philip described today, I have a free resource for you. It's called the Unbeatable Army Survival Guide. And I built this PDF download just to help you handle some of your toughest days. So if you want this free PDF to help you go through those hard days that Philip was talking about, all you got to do to get it is go to unbeatablearmy.com. Thank you for tuning in and listening to my friend Philip Bray. I can't wait till you hear next week's guest. I'll see you next time on Unbeatable.